just like that. Everything a leader has worked for, the influence that he or she has gained, the platform that they've been given can all go up in smoke just like that. We've seen evidence of it all around. We see it in celebrity pastors, NFL coaches, high school football coaches. We see it in CEOs and teachers. We've seen it in athletes and movie stars and maybe friends. We've seen it in every chamber in Washington, D.C., from the Capitol to the Oval Office. We've seen it maybe in our family and possibly in the mirror. In this series, Learning to Lead, we have uh, been talking about the life of King David, and there's so much good to learn from David. But the last two in this series are not good. Not good stories. In fact, uh, in fact, this today we're going to talk about one of the most difficult stories to read in David's life. It is like a, watching a horror movie where you know what's about to happen and you're like, don't do that. Don't go in there. You ever watch one of those? Like, don't go into the rickety old shed, right? It's a bad move. And when you begin to read this story after you know the background of David's heart and David's life and his, his path to become king, you just want to go, don't do that. It's a story of David having an affair and she gets pregnant. And he arranges for her husband to be killed and covers it all up and hides it from the public eye. And the story, the first horror scene moment, the first horror scene moment in the story is when David is on his roof and he sees down below in the city a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing and he is intrigued. And he sends messengers to see about her. Now, today, the teenagers, that's like, you know, they slide into your DMs, teenagers. That's what they do. Back when I was in school, if you were interested in somebody, you wrote a little note and passed it around class. But when you are the king, you send messengers. And I have always, I have a musical mind, and I have just always thought that this scene, I, every time I read it, it has this soundtrack. And I have just always thought that when those messengers showed up at Bathsheba's door and she opened it and saw the king's messengers, there must have been a soundtrack playing through her mind. You were trouble when you walked in. It's a shame on me now. I'll me to places I've never been. Till you put me down. Oh, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. Well, that was the funny part of the message because this was trouble. This was not going to end well. 
How did a man after God's own heart just take whatever he wanted? Just do whatever he wanted to do just because he's king, no matter how many dead bodies were left in the wake. In fact, the question, and you've probably had this question because you probably had a boss or a friend uh, or maybe you've seen some celebrity or something. You've seen somebody make a decision like this, do this. And, and here's the question we all ask, right? Where did they go wrong? Like, where did they go wrong? How did they get there? How did they get to that point? And, but here's what I want you to know. The story where it all falls apart is never where they went wrong. The story where it falls apart is never when it was wrong. The story that gets out on social media, the story that is in the tabloids, the story that is on TMZ, that is never the story where it went wrong. Because here's what I want you to know. We think about this. Here's what I want you to know. They did not make a bad decision. They made a series of bad decisions. The big story where it snap goes wrong and where it all comes crumbling down is never just that one bad decision. It is a series of bad decisions. This story is found in really two chapters of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So if you got your Bibles at home or maybe you got your app open here, your Bible, you want to kind of open it to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I hope you will read the whole two chapters this week because it's, it's, you just really kind of re need to read the whole story for yourself and you will see kind of this horror movie type thing of like, you're like, don't do that, then don't do that, no, please don't do that. You can sort of see it coming. And I want to start in a really weird place in the story, okay? I want to start where it all goes wrong. I want to start kind of when it all comes crumbling down, and then I want to walk back. I want to walk backwards in the story and see if we can figure which of the bad decisions were really the one that led David to make this monumentally bad decision. Like, where did it start? Because I think if we can learn where it starts, that's something we can learn for ourselves to make sure we don't start with a bad decision that leads to a series of bad decisions that leads to a monumentally bad decision. And then we're going to go back to the part where it all falls apart because I want, to see, I want you to see what happens there because though this is a tragic story, it is also a story of redemption and mercy and forgiveness and repentance and God's grace. And I think that's so important because you may have one of those stories in your life. And you may wonder if there is something on the other side, and I want you to be able to see today, and I want to learn myself from David, that there can be mercy on the other side. So let me kind of walk you through the story and give you a few more details. David sees Bathsheba bathing, and he sends these messengers, I mentioned, to send to find out about her, and she tells him that, he is, that she is the wife of one of his soldiers, a man named Uriah who was a Hittite. He's kind of known as Uriah the Hittite. So he sends messengers back after he finds out who she is, finds out that her husband's out of town, and sends messengers to get her, and he sleeps with her. But make no mistake, and this is a really important part of the story that often doesn't get told. This is essentially rape. She has no say in the matter. 
she was most likely taking a, a ceremonial bath at probably, probably like almost like a public ceremonial bathing where Jewish women were required by Jewish law to take a ceremonial bath after their menstruation. And David is on his roof one night and looks down. Maybe he has a habit of looking down at the ceremonial bathing place and sees a beautiful ceremonial, ceremonially clean woman and decides that he wants her. And a king gets whatever he wants in his kingdom. Well, she gets pregnant. So David has her husband brought back from battle, from the war. And he's going to bring him back, and he just figures, if I can bring him back, and then he'll go home, and he'll sleep with her, and it'll be no worse for wear. In nine months, everybody figures Uriah's baby, right? But he comes back, and uh, he... He, he, he sends Uriah home to sleep with, you know, to go home and spend some time with his wife. But in the morning, he wakes up and he finds out that Uriah slept outside of his own palace, outside of David's palace with David's servants. And in the morning, they're like, what's up? And Uriah says, I mean, how can I go home and act like everything is okay when my brothers are out in the battlefield? I mean, immediately we see Uriah as just like a man of character. How could I do that? So David tries again the next night, except this time he gets him drunk. He liquors him up and figures, like, that'll work. I'll get him drunk, and then he'll go home, and he'll sleep with her, and we'll be no worse for wear, and all this will be behind me. And, you know, listen, we can, we can just kind of get on. But somehow Uriah, again, finds his way to the entrance of the palace, even though he's a little buzzed, and he sleeps with the servants again. So the next morning, David hands Uriah a letter that is sealed to take back to his military commander, Joab. And Uriah has no idea that inside the letter is his own death sentence. The letter commands Joab to place Uriah at the front battle lines where the, battle, where the fighting is the fiercest. And says, when the war begins raging, when the battle begins raging, withdraw all the other men and leave Uriah out front by himself so that he'll be killed. And Joab complies because the king has ordered. But it's a tragic day and a gruesome day on the battlefield because the tactic doesn't only kill Uriah because of the tactic, because it's not a good tactic, several Many other men in the army are killed too. Joab sends messengers to David and tells him that the deed is done. Uriah is dead. And so at the very end of that story, in 2 Samuel 11, this is what it says in, in the story. In 2 Samuel 11, it says this. When Uriah's, and this is verse 26 and 27. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead. So when Bathsheba hears that her husband's dead, she mourned for him. The, the Jewish typical mourning period was called the Shiva. That was seven days. Uh, there were some mourning periods that would also, an additional one might be 30 days. This one was probably just that seven days, but that was kind of absolutely standard. You had to have the Shiva. You had to have seven days of mourning. 
after the time of mourning was over, so at, you know, at least seven days, at most 30 days, but probably seven, because I think I know what David's thinking. People can count eight months and nine months. David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. This is like, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And do you not read that and go like, yeah, which thing? I mean, which thing displeased the Lord? There were a lot of things. How did a man, you're talking about how a man after God's own heart abused his power and forgot his place, how he became enamored with who he was and forgot whose he was? A thousand years later, Jesus would say it this way. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? So what if you become king? So what if you become the greatest name in Israel? So what if you become, you know, the most powerful warrior in the known world if it costs you your soul? Several years ago, um, Oprah interviewed Dave Chappelle about why he walked away from a $50 million contract. Can you even wrap your head around that? Walked away from it. And he went and spent a year in South Africa all by himself. And listen, Chappelle's sometimes in the news for various things, and I, you know, I don't necessarily agree with everything that he says, but I was kind of taken aback when I heard this quote. He, he said that when he was away for that year, he learned something that he, he, he hearkened back to some, something he heard someone say, and he realized that the fame and the culture of Hollywood and the platform had gotten inside of him. And this is what he said to Oprah. I was fascinated by this. Success takes you where your character cannot sustain you. It can take you to a place where your character cannot sustain you. Competency gets you there, but character keeps you there. Competency gets you in the door, but character keeps you in the room. And your success can sometimes take you where your character can't sustain you. And so here's just a kind of a warning sign, a warning shot from David's stories that you're in trouble if your competency outpaces your character. David was highly competent, highly competent. He was a, a fierce warrior. And by all accounts, before, he was a, 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 just a fantastic worshiper of God. Last week, we read this story of how he just, you know, he just had this passionate for, passion for God and to make things right in Israel and to make things right in a holy city. I mean, he had so much going for him. But somewhere along the way, Somewhere along the way, he lost a part of his soul, and it eventually exploded his leadership. If your branches are going to grow high, your roots better be deep. Well, I mean, listen, young people, college students, teenagers, young adults, I, I hope you have great aspirations. I hope you change the world. But if you want your branches to grow high, you better make sure your roots are deep. Because your success can take you where your characters can't sustain you if you don't do the hard work of building a strong character. So, where did he go wrong? 
what are the turning points? This is what I thought. Like, what is the turning point in the making of a murderer? Well, let's rewind from where, it, where Samuel writes, the thing he did displeased the Lord. Like, well, okay, what thing? Like, let's rewind and see, like, was that the point where he went wrong? Well, let's see. Let's go back to verses 14 and 15 in chapter 11. I told you we're going to rewind and go back through the story and see if we can find the starting point because I think it's surprising. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. David didn't wake up one morning and decide to have a soldier murdered. This was a despicable act, but he didn't make this decision in a vacuum. He had a beef with Uriah because Uriah wouldn't do something that he wanted him to do, but not for lack of David's trying. Verse right before it, 13, says this. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. Have another. How about another? Have another. How about another? But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. David did not wake up one morning and say, I'm going to see if I can get this guy drunk and to sleep with his wife, and if he doesn't do it, I'm going to kill him. He didn't make that decision in a vacuum. No, David got him drunk because he couldn't get him to do it sober. You remember? Rewind the story. So David sent his word, this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. David asked him how Joab, this, is, this kills me. This tells you how dark David's heart's got. He brings Uriah in. And David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. He's making small talk with the guy he's trying to frame. Hey, like, how's your mom and them? Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. David sent food Sent candles, anything romantic he could do, right? Sent food after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants. It did not go down to his house. Stay with me here. One day, David did not wake up and say, I'm going to bring one of my soldiers back from the war, and if he doesn't sleep with his wife, that's it. No, it wasn't just any soldier. He brought back a soldier to cover up his own sin. Verses 3 and 5 in the story, we're getting closer, getting back to the beginning of the chapter. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. Remember what I said? Bathsheba had no choice in this. And we've taught this wrong for a long time in the church. This wasn't Bathsheba's sin. This was David's. Sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. 
Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. I don't think David, he didn't wake up one day and just say, guys, I'm going to find some random woman, and if she happens to be married, ah, no big deal. I'm the king, and I can sleep with her anyway. He didn't end up with this woman by accident, right? Go back one more verse, and we're getting closer. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, I honestly don't think that David woke up that morning and thought, tonight, I'm going to get up, go out on the roof. I'm going to commit adultery with a woman if I see a pretty one. And if I can't get her husband to come back and sleep with her and cover up my sin, I'm going to kill him. Yep, tonight's the night I turn into a murderer. I really don't think that's what happened. I really don't think. But he had convinced himself that it was okay to go on the roof when he wanted to look at all the women taking ceremonial baths. And he had given himself permission to objectify women. And there would be a lot of people that would say that was the start. Like that was the bad decision that led to a series of bad decisions that became a monumentally bad decision. And I, that's not a bad take. That's a, that's a good starting place to understand that is absolutely a bad decision David made. But I don't think it's the first one, and I don't think it's the main one, and I don't think it's the one that you and I have to watch out for most. I think the bad decision that led to a series of bad decisions that led to a monumentally bad decision was something in verse 1 that we, that we miss this. We throw it. It's a throwaway verse in the story of David and Bathsheba, and it's almost like it's not a part of the story, but I think it's the most important part of the story because it's the story you and I could find ourselves in if we're not careful. Verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. David did not wake up one morning and decide to turn into an adulterer and a murderer. But David absolutely woke up one morning in the springtime when all the kings go off to war and decided that he didn't have to anymore. That he was too good to do what he had always done. This man after God's own heart who won the hearts of the people because he was courageous enough to stand eyeball to eyeball with the Philistine giant Goliath and no one else would. This man who killed 200 Philistines in one battle. This man that 
came to fame and to power because he was the greatest warrior Israel had ever known. This shepherd boy who killed lions and bears and slayed a giant and talked trash to him because he told him he came in the name of the Lord. That king who woke up one morning decided he didn't need to do what had made him king in the first place. In the springtime, when kings go off to war, this king didn't. And here's something really powerful to learn. When you stop doing the right things, it's easier to start doing the wrong things. When you stop doing what you're supposed to do, it is so much easier to start doing the things that you should not do. When you stop doing the right things, it's easier to start doing the wrong things. When you stop reading your Bible, when you stop taking time to pray, when you stop taking time with God, when you stop making worship a priority, when you stop going to small group, when you stop going on dates with your spouse, when you stop being around the right people and the right groups, when you stop practicing spiritual disciplines, when you stop taking intentional time with your kids, when you stop doing all those things, you'll be amazed at how much time you have and how much space you have and how much your mind can tell you that you might want to start doing some things you shouldn't have been doing. You can come up with several excellent excuses about why you deserve it and why you earned it because you've been doing the right things for so long. So I want to close this out on the other side of that moment. Because there's hope at the end of the story that we all need. God sends a prophet, Nathan, to David. And this is what Nathan says to him when he comes. He tells him a story. This is in chapter 12. And I told you I'd love for you to read whole chapter 11 and chapter 12. This is the story Nathan tells him. It's a metaphor, but David doesn't know that. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, this rich man who had all kind of sheep, all kind of animals, all kind of things. He, he's got all of this, but a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, this rich man took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor lamb, this poor man who had only one ewe lamb, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. So he tells him this story. He tells him this story about how this traveler comes to town to a rich man, and the, the rich man wants to feed him, and he's got all these cattle and all these sheep, but instead of taking one of his, he goes and takes the one ewe lamb that this poor man's the only one he has. And I mean, so this is a fictional character, but David has no idea about that. Do you, can you process the metaphor here? David is the king. He's got everything, but he went and took the one wife, this one guy, and, I mean, this is great. In the next verse, it says this, David burned with anger against this man. How dare he? This fictional character. He burns with anger against him. This man deserves to pay. And Nathan responds, you are the man. 
David, you're the man in the story. You're the one who had everything. You're the one who has riches and palaces and multiple wives. And if you had asked God for more, Nathan says, he would have given you more. He, he, he would have given you more. And David, broken, it's almost like he comes to this realization and almost wakes up from this nightmare of like, what have I done? And in verse 13, he looks at Nathan and says this, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. What have I done? Where did I go wrong? And this is the point of the story that's so important for us. Because you might not have been a king, and you might not have ever arranged for anyone to be murdered. But I'll bet you've got a sin that you have worried and wondered, is it unforgivable? Maybe you are like David, that you had an affair. Or maybe it was a divorce. Or maybe you cheated a business partner. Or maybe you abandoned your family or turned to alcohol and drugs. Maybe uh, you spent some time behind bars. Maybe you've got a secret sin kind of wrecking your heart and your soul that no one knows about. Or maybe you have this nagging feeling that you have stopped doing the right things and you could start doing the wrong things at any minute. And you are wondering if your sin is too big to forgive. You have, you're wondering if you have committed the unforgivable sin. And Nathan doesn't look at David and tell him that God is done with you, that is no more. He doesn't look at him and tell him that. No, Nathan replies this. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. He is slow to anger. And quick to give mercy. We are all broken in different ways. We're all broken in different ways. And we all have things like David that make us feel like they are too big to, forgive it, to be forgiven. And I, listen, I don't want you to make the same mistakes David did where you would ever get in a situation where you make a monumentally bad decision after a series of bad decisions. But if you've got a mistake in your past, if you've got something going on in your past, I want you to know something that David learned. God's grace is always bigger than your biggest sin. And look, look, look me in the eye and let me tell you something. I don't, listen, if God can forgive David, he can forgive you. Because of Jesus, we believe that we can be forgiven of anything. And there's nothing out of bounds and nothing off limits. It says that our sins are thrown into a sea of forgetfulness, that we are distanced from our sins as far as from the east is from the west. David got so much wrong in this story, but the one thing he got right was the humility to come before God and confess his sins and say, I have sinned before the Lord. And I don't know what you've done. And I don't want to. And I don't need to. But I believe that if you will confess your sins to God, and he's the only one you need to confess to, 
that you will hear from God the same thing David heard through Nathan, that he has taken your sin away. Because church, look here, God's grace is always bigger than your biggest sin. This is the story of Jesus. This is what we believe in Christianity that's different from every other religion. This is what we call the gospel. Every other religion says you, we got to be good to get God's favor. And our, we, we don't say that. We say that we are broken. We are incapable of getting God's favor on our own. Our story is a cross. Our story is that we are all David's. We are all broken in some way. We are all messed up in some way. We are all incapable of receiving God's favor in some way. But if we just come to him and say, Lord, I have sinned. And Jesus' death on the cross makes that sin so big that it is at no contest in a sea of God's grace. And we believe that his resurrection three days later sealed the deal. Sin and death are done forever. So today, in kind of the heaviness of this moment and the heaviness of this story, we're going to close with this song run to the Father, fall into grace. And oh, I wish you would do that. And you're welcome to come up here and pray. And here's what happens. You get down on your knees or your home. Here's what happens. People are like, oh, if I, if I go up to the front, somebody's going to think something's wrong with me. Hint, look at your neighbor. There's something wrong with them. And there's something wrong with you. And there's something wrong with me. Well, there, there ain't nothing wrong with Jesus. And he has paid the price. And his grace is bigger than your biggest sin. And don't walk out those doors without experiencing that grace. Fall into grace. You know, I saw this months ago, and I'm probably sure you saw the same thing. Is that religion says, I messed up. I hope dad doesn't find out. But Christianity says, I messed up. I better call dad. Run to your father. Let's stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we run to you. We want to fall into grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for restoration and redemption. We confess to you, I confess to you, Lord, that I have sinned against the Lord. I am David. We are all David. And Lord, I would just pray for anybody in this room that feels like they have got something going on that is just too big. And it might have happened a year ago or five years ago or 10 or 20. But Lord, that they would lay it at your feet today. Lord, I pray for anybody in this room who feels like they are on the path, that they have made a bad decision to stop doing some right things, and they can see how they're starting to do some wrong things, Lord. And I pray today that you would convict their heart to say, I don't want to do what David did. I don't want to make that mistake, and I set my heart before you today, God. Lord, we sing to you. Work in us. Change us. Amen.